Lord, I am amazed at how you provided in this. Lord, we, we, we see your provision on a day-to-day basis and your kindness and your mercy to the Israelites in the wilderness. And Lord, um, I can't help but think of how you provide for us day by day, every morning, new mercies. And we're grateful for that. Lord, as we turn and we study chapter 16 and we see some um, challenging things, some encouraging things, um, some difficult things, Lord, would you stir in our heart, grow in our hearts a trust of you to know that you will provide. And Lord, I want to pray for my brother Dan Stromberg, who this morning is in the hospital, um, counting on your provision, counting on your love and your care for him, your concern for him. Lord, would you give him um, help and hope? Would you give his body strength to fight off the infection and restore him to us soon? We miss our brother. And uh, Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So as you discern from the prayer, Dan's in the hospital. Um, he texted me early Friday morning and he said, I'm beginning to get a cold. And usually what happens is I get an infection right after that. And it wasn't even an hour later. He said, yeah, I got an infection, high white blood cell count. You might want to get something ready for Sunday school. And then we hear he's checked into the hospital. His toe is infected. And so um, we're just praying that the Lord will use all the miracles of modern science to deliver him from that illness. Um, And so I threw together a Sunday school class in record time. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. It went well. I didn't uh, I didn't flounder too bad. Um, So this morning, we're looking at Exodus chapter 16. Remember, this is the portion of Exodus we've transitioned from. Oh, children. Yeah, children um, are invited to children's church. We have children. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. The reading threw me off. It just it threw off my groove. Yeah. Um, So the uh, and then I prayed before I released them. Oh, man. Where's the tradition? We, We have a tradition. We can't violate that. So. um We're going to look at chapter 16. And remember, this is the portion of the book of Exodus that I said is God rules us. So up into the Red Sea, God delivers us. And he he led them out of Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt. He he decisively destroyed Egypt in the Red Sea. And now they are free. They're they're out in the wilderness and God is leading them. And uh, what God did last week, what we saw was he, he had two little episodes about water. Um, they came to the waters of Mara, and it was bitter, and they couldn't drink it, and they complained, and God fixed it. And then God mentioned his law. He was going to give them his rules. And what we said last week is the law before the law, which is you shall obey the Lord your God. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And then he led them to Elam. And that's where the story begins as it picks up as they have left Elam, and they're wandering in the wilderness. They're going further. Uh, it says that it's the 15th day of the second month after they departed. So it's about two, uh, two months since they've left Egypt. So remember, the, uh, the story at Mara was about three days after they left the Red Sea. So now they've been wandering two weeks in the wilderness. And just like we saw at uh, Mara, they were in trouble. And, and we can sometimes, you know, click our tongue and roll our eyes and, oh, those silly Israelites, and how could they be so grumbly? But they were in real danger last week. They, they couldn't go without water for too long. Their flocks would be threatened. Their, their families would be threatened. And so when they see this, this glimmer of water, like, oh, this is going to be great, and it's undrinkable. And so it just felt once again that they were threatened. So the, the, the sense of danger is real and it's right. What the problem was is they grumbled. And we saw last week how God led them to Elam, which was 
12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and it was just beautiful oasis and they pull up and they park and they they bring their flocks forward and they, they fill all the water bags and everything is great it's just going to be wonderful and there's no more grumbling right yeah it didn't last one chapter they wind up in a similar situation now it's been a couple of weeks since they've left uh, Elam and they're wandering a little further into the desert but the problem now is they don't have any food And so the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So the threat, again, is real. They're going to need to eat. So why don't they just eat the flock? They, They got all these sheep and goats that they're bringing with them. Well, these are experienced shepherds, and they know that there's a a delicate balance you have to maintain. Shepherds are really slow to eat from the flock because you have to have a certain number of of, uh, animals to maintain food for everybody else. So they could live off the milk. They could have yogurt and and cheese and and, uh, curds and those kind of things. But if they cut too deeply into the flock, then that diminishes. And they have to have a large stock of animals because they have to breed. And if that gets too small, then you hit this critical point where there's just no return and, and the, the breed, the, the flock just diminishes. So you look at this and go, well, eat a goat for heaven's sake. But that really isn't a, a live option for them. They're trying to preserve their herd and yet move forward. Imagine if you suddenly retired or lost your job or something and you had a big chunk of money in the bank. And it's generating some income. It's generating some, some interest for you. And suddenly you, you have a big need. If you take too much of that money out of the bank, the interest is now going to diminish and you're going to have to take more money out and you could wind up eating up that savings. That's what the problem is here with their flock is they can't eat into their flock, literally eat into their flock. So they're in a desperate situation. They need food. Their flock needs food. That's not the problem. The problem is they grumble. And did you hear the grumble? It was alarming. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. What a horrible thing to say. They think they would be better off being in Egypt and having God kill them the way he killed the Egyptians because it would be better to die that way than to starve to death out in the wilderness. And then they get all romantic on me. They they, they just like, Egypt was so wonderful, right? Right? We sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. We, we had our crock pot sitting here, and we had beef stew just simmering away. We had lamb stew in our, in our crock pot, and we had bread to the full, so we'd just pick up some bread, dip it in there, and we just that's all we did. We sat around and ate all day. They have totally romanticized what was going on in Egypt. They were slaves. Did they sit anywhere and do anything? No, they were slaves. They were driven to the point of exhaustion. Do you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh the first time and said, let my people go? Pharaoh's response is, they don't have enough to do. Make them get their own straw. And they cry out bitterly. They're angry about that. Why is it so unfair? So this this romantic vision of Egypt is just, it's what desperate people do is we remember and nostalgicize, make nostalgic. We romanticize the past and say, oh, it was so much better back then. But it wasn't always. And so this is the complaint that they bring up. They, they, they think that they're going to get killed in the wilderness by starvation. So the problem is not that they were hungry. That's a legitimate concern. The problem is that they grumble. And then, do you remember how they're being led? 
It's not just Moses out front going, I have GPS, let's go this way. There is a pillar that follows them, that leads them, this pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night so they could travel at night. So as they're grumbling and they're complaining, what's standing in front of them is God's manifestation. And they're saying, Moses, you're going to kill us because God's not going to provide for us. He's not going to take care of us. It is an alarming charge. It is something else that they make this charge when God in the manifestation of his glory in that cloud is standing before them. But, but God, isn't that the wonder, most wonderful words you hear? But God, he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't go, oh, you want to starve? I'll make you starve. Quit your whining. He answers their grumble. As a matter of fact, he answers their grumbling and their complaining in such a perfect way that it meets not only their immediate needs, it will meet their needs in the future. And then that whole issue of how he provides will echo forward to answer our needs. So that's, that's what we're going to see this morning as we get, go through chapter 16, is the Lord will provide. But he's going to provide not just what you think you need, but what you actually need. So he's going to give them the need that they have. He's going to answer their requirement for food. And then he's going to give them something they couldn't possibly have had in Egypt. He's going to give them rest. So that's, that's where he goes. Um, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven on you. And the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God promises immediately I'm going to meet their response. They, they are hungry for bread. I am going to shower bread on them. I'm not going to just stingily handle out a little bit here and there. I'm going to rain it on them. It's going to come down upon them. But the reason I'm doing this, he says, is that I may test them to know whether they will walk in my law or not. Does God not know what they're going to do? Is, is he just, I'm really hoping, man, I'm, I'm going to throw this out there and I really hope they respond well. God knows exactly what's going to go on. God is going to test them, not so that he will know about them, but so that they will know about him. And we'll see that come out more clearly in the rest of the text as we go through. So he promises in a very unsure kind of vague way that he's going to rain bread on them. We don't know what that means yet. So now we're, we all know the rest of the story, so we're jumping ahead. But just put yourself in Israel's shoes at this point. I don't know what that means. So I'm looking for bre- loaves to fall out of the sky or something. You know, rainy with a cloud, chance of meatballs or whatever that was. You know, food fall. That's, that's what I'm picturing is you're going to throw bread at us. This is going to be great. And then God continues. He says, on the sixth day, they will prepare what, the, what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So you're only going to provide for us six days and then we'll get twice as much. I don't know. I don't understand what's going on. So this is one of the times where God directly speaks. In other words, it's a quote of his very words. He speaks three times in this and then he speaks indirectly three times. In other words, Moses said, this is what the Lord said. So he speaks three times and all three times he speaks to Moses. He doesn't speak directly to the people at this point. So he still got Moses forward as his representation to them. So he says that they will, on the sixth day, they will get twice as much. Not sure what that means. Let's, let's keep going. What else is going to happen here? Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumblings against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So Moses says, you know that, that grouchiness you had this morning? They're probably hangry. You ever heard that term, hangry? So hungry you get angry. So they're probably hangry. But they start grumbling against Moses. And Moses is like, it's not against me. I'm not able to do this. 
you're grumbling against the Lord. And so he mentions evening you will see and in the morning you will know. So evening and morning sounds familiar, doesn't it? Does it sound familiar? The six days of creation, there was evening and there was morning the second day. So evening and morning, he's hinting at something here. There's something going on, but the Lord is going to provide that evening. So that afternoon, they're, they're, they missed the uh, lunch counter. It closed early, and now they're, they're hangry and they're grumbling. And God says, this evening, I'm going to provide for you. You will have meat this evening, and in the morning, you will see. So he says, in the evening, you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. So I'm going to do something in the evening that you will know that I am the Lord, and in the morning, you will see God's glory. That's, that's the promise that he makes. So that's what's going to happen. This is what, where we're going with this. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him. So that's the plan. Now we understand a little bit better what God's going to do. They're hungry and God is going to provide. They, they want to sit by the meat pots in, in Egypt. You don't need to go back to Egypt. I'm going to bring meat on you this evening. Um, and then in the morning, you'll have food to eat to your full. So the picture here is God heard their grumbling. God heard their, their, their whining, their, their upsetness. This is something that's happened before. Do you remember how Exodus began? And God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God heard. God listened to his people. He heard what they were saying. It's not about God being far off in distance and, and, and you know, occasionally acting. He, he didn't hear about his people. He didn't come to know them some other way. He heard their groanings when they were in Egypt. And he said, I'm going to act because of my covenant with Abraham. He heard their grumblings now. And he says, I'm going to act because my people are hungry. God in this is not far off and distant and cold. He's very engaged and very with his people. He wants to be with them. He wants them to hear and to know that he is the Lord. That's why I said he's going to test them, not so that he would know what's in them, but they would know who he is. He wants them to know, I am Yahweh who led you out of Egypt. And I didn't lead you out of Egypt to destroy you. I led you out for a purpose. I'm going to take you someplace. So that's where they're going to go. The evening they're going to get meat. In the morning they're going to get bread. And so in verse 9, Moses says to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I wish I knew what that meant. But can you imagine what the glory of the Lord appearing in the wilderness would have meant for them? They might have began to think, well, you know, the cloud, maybe it's just a weather phenomena or something, but all of a sudden the glory of the Lord appears in it. Maybe in the middle of the day, it's glowing super bright, brighter than the sun. I just, I wish Moses would give us more detail, but he didn't. But you can get the feel for what's going on is God in the grumbling, because he heard the grumbling, his glory appears. Not in spite of the grumbling, but because they grumbled, his glory appears. And he shows them who he is. He shows them his glory. And he says, I have heard the grumbling of the people say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you, you shall find bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Right? He tested them, not so they would know, or not so he would know who they are, but he's testing them so that they would go, oh, this is what God's like. This is what he is like. Remember my, my 
theory from Genesis was they didn't understand who God was and they didn't understand who they were. They thought God was like one of the Egyptian gods, a regional deity or the god of a hill or, or palm trees or something. And Yahweh is saying, no, I'm not like any of that. I'm, I'm God over all. So I want you to see, I want you to know, I want you to experience here in the desert as we're walking that I am the Lord your God. It, it's a great theology lesson, very practical for them. And so that's what he wants to do. He wants to lead them so that they would know. And, and like I said earlier, you know, sometimes we can go tisk tisk these poor Israelites. What, why couldn't they just believe? Um, but don't forget, we're, we're looking at the story in a condensed version. We didn't get every little detail, did we? We got three days. We skipped three days when they got to the um, to uh, uh, Mara. Now it's been a couple of weeks. We still don't know what's going on. We're not getting every little detail. We haven't experienced this with them. We're getting a condensed version of their story. Uh, we didn't get all the details of their slavery. Did you think about that? How little detail we got about their slavery? We were told that they had to make bricks, then they had to get their own straw, and that they were taskmasters, and we hear about somebody beating them. That's a minor little portion of what a, a nation of about 2 million people would have experienced in slavery in Egypt. We didn't get that. So don't roll your eyes at them and say, oh, you guys just don't get it. They experienced something that we haven't even, even begun to scratch the surface of. We haven't experienced their desperation in the wilderness. We're going so fast through the wilderness story, we didn't spend a couple of weeks with them going, where are we going to get food? Or watch maybe some of their flock begin to die or their young children begin to get sick because they don't have water. Where are we going to get water? We didn't walk with them in that. Their response is very human. It's very real. And you know what else it sounds like? Jesus' disciples. Doesn't it? And that reminds me of me in a lot of ways. Is Sometimes I can know the truth but still grumble about it, still not be happy with where the Lord's leading me. And here's the problem. Here's the quote-unquote problem. Here's the issue. God is invisible. That is the perfect way. That is the right way. That is the, the, the most holy way for him to exist is to be invisible. We can't see him working. We can't see him walking. We can't see him doing what he's going to do. And so in our fallenness, in our brokenness, we tend to believe what our eyes are telling us rather than what the Lord has communicated to us. And so we struggle with that. How, how can I trust him in this? I can't see him doing anything. So we need to give the, the, the Israelites a little bit of a break here. Is God is invisible. Even though his glory is manifested in this pillar, he's, he's invisible. They can't see what he's doing. And, and also, the other thing is, God's not a genie. The story of the genie is you rub the lamp and you make a wish, and poof, he makes it happen. God doesn't treat us like that. We, we don't make a wish, say a, a prayer, uh, hold a rosary, read a Bible verse, and poof, it happens. Because God's not a genie. He's a person. He's a, he's a, a real personality, a, a person who loves you, who cares for you, who wants the best for you. And so there are times when the appropriate answer to you is no. And so we kind of forget sometimes God's not a genie here. He doesn't just appear and, and make everything happy for the, uh, for the Israelites. He doesn't always tell us what he's going to do. And sometimes, because he's invisible, because it's hard, because we wind up in difficult situations, it's hard to trust. So that's where they find themselves. But God, in the midst of this, is good to them. And he says, I'm going to provide. I'm going to give you. So this is where we started reading. In the evening, the quail came up and covered the camp. The quail didn't land two miles from the camp. There was, a, uh, a, there was probably a wind that blew the quail, this big 
flock of quail just come tumbling into the camp. So can you imagine the Israelites after complaining about, we don't have any food, we're going to starve to death. They open up, uh, step out of the, the, the tent in the evening, and you can't walk because the ground's covered in quail. Kids, go catch some quail. I'll get the fire going. We're going to eat well tonight. So they would eat these quail. And there are quail in this, in this area, in the, the Sinai Peninsula. Um, one commentator just described him as bullet head. And I don't think that meant, you know, they, they were really fast. It meant their, their head was kind of short and sharp. And said that like quail, they run on the ground most of the time. So however they wound up running into the camp, that was, that was dinner. They were provided for miraculously. Moses doesn't really focus on the quail. This is where he goes. In the morning when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine like frost on the ground. So this is what we know to be manna, but we don't know what it is. Um, we're not sure what this is. That word flake-like thing, that's the only place in the entire Bible that word shows up. And that's really a problem with Hebrew because like with Greek, we may get a word that shows up in the Greek Bible and is only used once, but it's used in other Greek literature and you can find it someplace else. Hebrew did not spread all over the globe. And so when we look at this word in Hebrew, this is all we got. So what does it mean? I don't know. We're not sure. We think it might be flake-like. Um, the King James Version says a small round thing. Uh, a, a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And the King James translates it, they were kind of following early Jewish commentators who referred to it as round, as, as a disc or a globule or something like that. Uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation says, something fine like coriander, white like frost. Well, they pick up coriander because later that's how Moses would describe its flavor, is it tastes like coriander. So they pick it up and they put it in there. Um, the idea is we don't know what this is. We're not sure what it looked like, how it worked, but we know when the dew came up and then the dew evaporated, it was left on the ground, this frost all over everything. It reminded them of the frost. Um, so don't feel bad if we don't know. Sometimes it's good to not know. And besides, this is why Israel saw it, and they looked at one another and they said, what is it? That, that's how it got its name, manna. Was, what is it? What do we call this thing? So at the end of the chapter, we hear them going, that, that, Moses explains, that's why it's called manna. And you know what? It didn't last forever, did it? The manna ended as soon as they got to the promised land. So what we see later is, is Moses will tell uh, Aaron, get a omer of it and preserve it. Put it in a, in a jar and hang on to it. Put it with the testament and keep it with the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll be carrying around later on. And that'll be a reminder, this is what manna is, because we won't know. And we don't know today what it is. And it's okay. The point is, it was God's miraculous provision. He, he provided for them regularly. And he said, when they said to each other, what is this? Moses said, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. That, I don't know about you, that kind of weirded me out a little bit ago. Okay, so this thing kind of showed up outside the camp for no good reason. We've never seen it before. We don't know what it is. You want us to go out, grab a handful, and eat it. <laughs> I don't know what this is. So even this is an act of trust. This is the food. This is the bread. It doesn't look like bread. I was expecting a nice loaf, you know, maybe a little leaven in it, you know, raised, maybe a little cross on the top, hot cross bun, something like that. I wasn't expecting white, salty-looking stuff on the ground. But that's what the Lord provided. And that would be what he would provide for them for the whole time. So this is the food that God's going to give them. What, uh, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is they ate the same spiritual food. 
He's talking about the manna. So is this real food or is it fake food? It's not real food, it's just a spiritual food. I think what he means by spiritual is miraculous. They ate the same miraculous food that God would provide because right after that, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, they drank the same spiritual drink. But it was water that they drank. It was spiritual in that God miraculously provided it for them. So I think that's what's going on is this food, this manna is going to be this spiritual thing. It's, it's going to feed them while they're on the road and it's a miracle that God gave it to them. It is totally a miracle. Um, I read through some of the commentaries and some of the ways people tried to explain it just made no kind of sense. There is a specific kind of bug that will chew on this one bush and it will cause the sap to come out in little globes and, and that's what that was, except they only last during the spring. So where did it come forward from the rest of the 40 years? And that doesn't work. Uh, one of the goofier ones I heard, and it wasn't from a Bible scholar, said there was a um, comet passed over. And, and sprayed out something, and that's what they ate. And like, how long do you see comets hanging 40 years over a spot? You know, that, that doesn't make any kind of sense. The point is, this is miraculous. This is God's miraculous provision. It's something that is not common. That's why it's so odd. It's, it's, it's something that God did specifically for them. And so Moses says, this is what the Lord commanded. Gather each of you as much as he can eat. And so God's response to their grumbling about food is, first of all, fill them up with quail, and the next morning say, now eat as much as you can eat. We're coming into Thanksgiving. Isn't that good news? That's good news. So on Thanksgiving, eat as much as you can eat. Let loosen a belt buckle or two, go into a food coma. That's a holy thing, right? So eat as much as you can eat. Um, that's the plan. His response to grumbling is not... Um, my uncles used to do it's called threat me on the head. Pop like that. They got out of line, they threat me on the head. God does not threat them on the head. He provides enough for them to eat. Daily they are to go out and gather as much as they can, they can take in. And so that's the blessing. This is what the Lord's doing. I'll talk louder.
So somebody kept it a little bit of the side. Yeah, we'll just hang on to it. And what happens? I love the description. It bred worms and it stank. All right, get that thing out of the tent. It's stinking. I don't want it in here anymore. God had told them exactly what they were supposed to do. Daily, go out and get a day's portion and don't save it over. When God provides, he provides just enough and no more. And so that's what they did. Is they, This is another miraculous property. It couldn't be stored. Or could it? When the sun grew hot, he says, it melted. So it's not like it stayed on the ground all day and they went out and got a little, and then later on they could go, you know, you just lay out in the yard and, and munch on the manna. You go out, you gather it up. When the sun came up, it melted, it was gone. Here's what you're given. Get it while, you, get it while it's available, and then that's it, it's gone. Um, so that's what he means by the sun when it grew hot. Is, is not the, it, uh, it, in the tent or something, it went away. It was d- dissolved off the ground. So they had to get it in the morning. They couldn't go out and graze all day. They had to take only what they needed. No hoarding, no storing up. Everyone had an equal share. They had to use what they were given that day. And if they didn't use it, it went bad. What does that sound like? God gives us gifts. He gives us his provision on a daily basis. And so he doesn't give us more grace than we need in the moment, nor does he give us less. What he does is he meets us in the moment and he says, here, here's exactly what you need. And Jesus taught us to pray this, didn't he? Give us this day our daily bread. Give me today exactly what I need. Because I want to have a faith. I want to trust in you on a daily basis and and know today that you'll provide. If he gives us too much, we get too comfortable in the excess. And we forget, oh, yeah, well, I need to rely on God. But when he meets our needs just daily, just what we need, just when we need it, then our our faith and our hope and our trust in him grows. So that's the need that they had. That was the the immediate need that came upon them is they needed food. They grumbled about meat and they grumbled about bread. And God says, here's some quail and here's some manna. He gave them what they needed. But where he goes next is he gives them something that they could never have. He gives them something they could not possibly get in Egypt if they turned around and went back. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over, lay aside and keep till the morning. If you try that during the week, it breeds worms and it stinks. On this day, on the sixth day, on Friday, when you gather, get twice as much and watch what happens. You would expect it to do what it did before, but it doesn't. What he says is, tomorrow is a, is a rest, a solemn rest. Um, that's not really the word that's there. It's, it's, it's rest, really. It's, it's sabbat, which is where we get Sabbath from. Um, it's a day of rest. And then he goes on to explain, it is a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Um, so tomorrow is a solemn rest. Uh, the NIV, I think, confuses it a little bit. He said that, that says tomorrow will be a day of Sabbath rest. Kind of blends the two together really quick. Um, the New American Standard um, makes a big interpretive decision for us. It says tomorrow is a Sabbath observance. So it takes the two and crams them together as well. But it's Sabbath and rest sitting side by side. Um, the uh, Christian Standard Bible says, maybe in a little bit of an overreach, tomorrow is a day of complete rest. Well, 
Theologically, we know that's probably what was aiming at, but that's not what the text says. It just says rest. And the King James says, tomorrow it will be the rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the Lord. And I think that's getting at it. So we get rest and we get Sabbath. Uh, It's a holy Sabbath to the Lord. This is the first use of the word Sabbath in the Bible. And yes, I'm assuming that Moses wrote Genesis first and then Exodus, and that these were the beginning of the Bible. This is the first time Sabbath comes up. Um, And it's used right next to its root, which is rest. This brings up a point of discussion, contention, struggle within Christianity. How do Christians relate to the Sabbath? That, that's the point. That's the question that comes up is, should Christians observe a Sabbath? And my response to that is, it depends on what you mean by Sabbath. Um, some of the folks who are a little bit more strict on the Sabbath side is they would look and they'd say, well, um, the Sabbath existed before the law and therefore we should observe a Sabbath. And um, some of the folks who are less on that side would say, no, the Sabbath is an institution of the law And therefore, Christians, we're not under law, we're under grace, and we don't have to observe a Sabbath. And I've known people on both sides of that equation and and had discussions with them. Um, So if you are in the camp that you think the Sabbath is pre-exists the law, well, this is chapter 16. We don't get to Mount Sinai. We don't get the law. We don't get the Ten Commandments till chapter 20. So it did predate the law, didn't it? Um, As a matter of fact, uh, one... um, one gentleman wrote a book on the Sabbath, um, and he, he wrote about this very chapter. His name is Joseph Pipa. He says, in Exodus 16, we discover that Israel was aware of the responsibility of Sabbath keeping before God gave them the Ten Commandments. When God gave man in the wilderness, he gave none on the Sabbath. When questioned about this arrangement, God said, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This answer indicates that they were aware of the Sabbath. So that's the theological position says Sabbath predates law. He didn't have to explain the Sabbath. Um, They they just knew what it was. Um, I have used that argument in the past. I think it's a bad argument. It's a little bit of cherry picking here because what did God actually say? What he said before that is he said, how long will you not keep my laws and commandments? See, I have given you the Sabbath. Well, we cut off that first part because we don't want it tied to the law. So it's a a little sneaky with it. But... The other part of the argument that it predates the law is when we do get to the law, the Exodus, or the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, when, when God gives that, what he says is, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So the Sabbath was created and inst- instituted at, at creation. And so the, the Sabbath then, this idea of rest, is part of the creation mandate, part of the creation ordinance, like work and rest and marriage and uh, dominion over the earth and those kind of things. It's just part of creation, and therefore Sabbath predates that, right? That's the argument. It's incomplete because that's not all the Bible says about the origination of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, um, when Moses restates the Ten Commandments in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, when he gets to the Fourth Commandment, he says... You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So that's rooted not in creation, but when Moses repeats it, he roots it in the Exodus. That's the the point of it, isn't it? 
is, is rooted in the Exodus. And then if I can complicate it a little bit more, if I haven't complicated it enough yet, um, when we get to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, when the author there is talking about rest, what he says is, if Joshua had given them rest, so he's looking to the idea of God's rest, right? Like he rested on the seventh day of creation. He, he created in six days and rest. He doesn't look to that and say, therefore, there's a Sabbath. What he says is that wasn't the, the rest that, that Joshua was propping. He looks to the interest to the promised land as God's creative rest. And so it's just, it's as complicated. It's a lot more moving parts than um, is obvious from what you hear from some of the folks who are um, pro-Sabbath. So let's take it apart a little bit. Let me try, try to clear the air now on this. So if we say the Sabbath is part of the law, therefore Christians don't have to observe it, right? We are, we are not under law, we're under grace. The Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic covenant. It was given to Israel. It's not for the church. It, it doesn't abide. Um, there's actually some scripture to support that because Deuteronomy chapter five ties it to the Exodus. Um, and then Hebrews picks it up and says, the goal of the Exodus was to get them to the promised land. It's tied to the promised land. So there's this whole thing where it's rooted in Israel. It's for Israel. And so, yeah, maybe that's part of it. But then what do you say when you look at, well, it's a creation ordinance. It was when God created and, and Exodus 20 ties it to creation. And so, well, that's not going to fit. No, that won't work. And then if we do the other way around, if we say it's a creation ordinance, of course it abides. Well, what about all this other stuff? Well, now we're, we're in this, this hopeless confusion of, are we supposed to keep a Sabbath or not? And I'm not even going to touch which day of the week. That's a whole hornet's nest that will get us in a lot of trouble. There's a, a somewhat Christian denomination, Seventh-day Adventists, and they tell you right there what it is, seventh day, worship on Saturday. Um, but I think if we approach this and, and try to gather all of these things together in our head and pull them all together, it'll help us understand what Sabbath is and what it's not. First of all, in chapter 16, what is Sabbath rooted in? Just in chapter 16, it is not rooted in God being a stingy person who says, I'm going to zap you if you work on this day. It's rooted in his provision. I am giving to you, and I'm going to give you bread daily, just enough bread for every day, and then on the sixth day, I'll give you twice as much so that on the seventh day, you could rest. It's not, here's a law, here's a commandment, here's, here's how to be real stingy and mean about it. It's God saying, I am providing, I'm providing, I'm providing, I'm giving you food. I'm going to give you food daily. And I know you want to go back to Egypt. I know Egypt sounded really good. I'm going to give you something Egypt would never give you. And that is a day of rest. Do slaves get a day off? Slaves never get a day off. That Jesus told a parable about a man comes home and his slave has been working in the field. And he says, hey, make me dinner. And the slave comes in and changes his clothes and makes him dinner. And, and that's the picture here is the slave doesn't get the day off. God is telling Israel, I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to provide what you whined about, what you complained about, what you were grumbling about, but I'm going to go beyond that and I'm going to give you something more. I'm going to give you rest. So now I think we can have, as Christians, we can have a little bit of a negative view of Sabbath because we're looking at it through New Testament eyes. And what did the, what did the Pharisees do with Sabbath? Jesus looked at him and said, you heap burdens on people's backs and you don't lift a finger to help them. When Jesus healed somebody, what was their response? You healed on the Sabbath? You got to die. What? The Sabbath is God's provision. It's his gift. It's his, his goodness. Why are you telling me that I can't do something good on the Sabbath? 
And then Jesus announces to them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And he tells them, look, don't, don't come to me with all these rules and regulations about Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So even in God's resting on the sixth day, even in the way he provides manna in the wilderness, it's for man. He did it for us. He says, I understand people. People need rest. You can't work constantly and thrive. So I'm going to put this in your midst. I'm going to provide for you a day of rest. So that's why the Pharisees get all uppity about it is because they forgot it was God's provision. They looked at it and said, it's a law. This is what will make God happy with us. This is how we will please him is by obeying the Sabbath. So you can't take more than this many steps on the Sabbath. Otherwise, you violated the Sabbath. And you pick that up over your head. That's a violation of the Sabbath. And you can't do that. And so Christian, don't ever look at Sabbath keeping in that way, what you can and cannot do. It, that's not what it's about. As a matter of fact, I picked on Joseph Piper. I want to now defend him a little bit. In his book, he asked that very question, what can we do on the Sabbath? And he said, it depends. Can I, can I go on a hike on the Sabbath? Can I go out and hike in the, in the woods on the Sabbath? Yeah, sure, I guess. If you're the kind of person, you have a job where you're working in a, in a windowless office or in a factory floor and you all see machinery and all this other stuff, Sabbath might be great for you to go out and take a walk in the woods and see God's glory in his creation and experience. That might be great Sabbath rest. So go worship him and then go take a hike. That's fine. It's okay if you do that. So the, the, the people who want to be modern day Pharisees can get really picky about what can we do on the Sabbath and what can't we do. And, and the point is, enjoy the Lord. It's, it's a gift. It's a rest. It's not a bunch of laws. So Sabbath is, is what God institutes here, and we can't take it out of the context of his provision, his loving provision. Now, to be fair, as we go through the, the rest of the Old Testament, the Sabbath will pick up rules. There will be laws attached to it. As a matter of fact, what we'll see in Exodus is at one point, somebody goes, up to pick out stick, or goes outside to pick up sticks on the Sabbath. And they come to him and they say, what should we do? And Moses says, I don't know. Let me go talk to the Lord. And God says, stone him. And, and later in the law, there will be things that say you can't do this on the Sabbath. So law does attach to it at some point. But what we do is we wind up equating the law with the Sabbath and making it worse. The truth is, when we look at it in this context, what did they do? It says right in this context, they went out on the, they, Moses said, don't go out and pick any up. There won't be any out there. And they went out and did it anyway. And they walked outside and went, oh, there's nothing out here. And God doesn't say, now stone them. This is before law. This is before the law. So as Christians, when we look at Sabbath, we have to look at it as this is a gracious gift that comes to us, Gentiles, through creation, through Jesus Christ. He, he rested on the Sabbath, didn't he? He was crucified on, on Friday and laid in the grave all Saturday. He woke early on Sunday morning from death. He fulfilled the legal requirements of Sabbath for us so that we could ultimately rest in him. And that's where the author of Hebrew goes with it, is he says, today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. For there exists a Sabbath, and unfortunately most modern translations put rest, but it's just the word Sabbath, for there exists a Sabbath for the people of God. We have a Sabbath in Jesus Christ. We rest from our works. He fulfilled the requirements of the law on our part. We rest in him for our salvation. We rest in him for our justification. We don't work to be just with God. 
Jesus fulfilled our Sabbath. So this is that, that picture of his fulfillment, and we can rest in that. So is just go with me on this. Today is a Christian version of the Sabbath, okay? Sunday, because Jesus rose from the dead. I don't want to get lost in the weeds again trying to f- sort that out. We gather together as God's people and we worship him. And then what do you do with the rest of the afternoon? Whatever you want. You take it easy. You don't go out and labor some more, figuring, you know, I I need to provide for tomorrow because I'm not going to have enough. You go and you say, I'm going to make worship of the Lord a priority, and it's going to sacrifice. It's going to be a sacrifice on my part because I could be out selling cars or whatever it is on a Sunday, but I'm going to make a sacrifice, and I'm going to trust that the Lord will provide. I'm going to trust that he's going to be good enough. That's what I think the immediate context of chapter 16 is telling us, is there is manna and there is Sabbath, and they come together. They they arrive to us hand in hand together. So that's the immediate context. That's the, the fulfillment that will happen with them. The manna won't continue, will it? It will end at the promised land. But you know what it'll do at the promised land? It'll open the flood. It'll open up the the Jordan River. Here's what I mean. Moses, at the end of this, tells Aaron, take an omer and keep it with the testimony of the Lord. Now, by the time Moses wrote this, might be well after the establishment of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews tells us that was in there, that there was a, a container of manna in there. So when they get to the promised land, Joshua leads them across and says, now, when you get to the River Jordan, the priests are going to go before you. They're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and when they get to the Jordan, their foot will hit the water, and it'll stand up like a heap. It'll back all the way up. So the manna is there with them as they're going in, and they'll keep it for however long it's around. Apparently, somebody got in there and stole it. But it'll go with them. So in a way, it abides, but it doesn't. But the Sabbath does abide, and it abides all the way to us because it is God's gracious provision. Let me prove to you that this is what's going on. John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He has just miraculously provided bread for them. And so what happens is he he leaves that side of the the, um, Sea of Galilee, travels to the other side, and this is what John chapter 6 says, uh, beginning in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, Truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because of the signs you saw signs, but because you were filled with uh, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you for on him. God, the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Let me give you a clue, Jesus. Let me clue you in. Here's here's an idea. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're, they're hinting. You know what? Jesus was exactly right, wasn't he? You're here not because of the miracle, not because you saw signs. You're here because you want your belly filled. And so they're, they're hinting again. Yeah, you know, we need a sign to trust in you. So make more bread. And Jesus goes on. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave them bread from heaven, but my father 
gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what was the sign of manna? What was the sign of this bread that God would give, this rest that he would provide? What work do we do to do the work of God? You trust in the one he has sent. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who believes in the Son of Man will not be lost, but will be raised up on the last day. So that's the picture. That's the new covenant promise of the manna and the Sabbath. And listen to where this goes. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled. Jesus speaks to them. He looks them in the face. He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Trust me. And they grumbled. People do not change. People are the same. This is thousands of years later, and they're exactly the same. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus goes on in this discourse, and he says, You have to eat my body and drink my blood. He's trying to puncture their, their, their missing understanding. He's being as graphic as possible. In, in chapter 15, or chapter 16, yeah, 15 and 16, he provided water. He provided bread. Now the fullness comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, here's what you have to do. Trust me. Eat my body. Drink my blood. That's true bread. That's true water. That will provide a well that will spring up in for you for eternity. So this is what our hope is in. We're still wandering in the desert. We're just like Israel in the desert, except we don't have bread falling out of the sky. We have a person come down from heaven and showing himself, saying, eat my body and drink my blood. And, and obviously he's not talking about eating his flesh because none of the disciples woke, walked up and took a bite out of his arm. Nobody cut his wrist and tried to drink his blood. That, they knew that's not what he meant. What he meant is, I am Yahweh's provision. I will supply. I, you will find rest in me. You will find true food in me. So let's listen to what Jesus said. Father, give us this day our daily bread. That's the promise. That's the hope. And in the midst of all of that, God will provide. He will give what we actually need. So the way that the section ends is he, he, Moses kind of gathers it all up. He says that it's, the people of Israel call it manna. What is it? And uh, it was like coriander seed, white, and it had the taste of wafers made with honey. I, I love those things. You ever get those with a nice, strong cup of coffee? Those little wafers, and they got honey in the middle, and they're kind of, oh, man, I'm sorry. Now I'm hungry. 
Um, it, it just is such a pleasant picture to me. This wafer made with honey is just sounds so pleasant. Um, he says it's like coriander, white, and it tasted like uh, wafer made with honey. And this is what the Lord commanded, that they would keep a ephah, and that's what they did. So they placed it in the Ark of the Testimony. And then the way the chapter ends, the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to, the habitab- to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. They had got, how long did God provide for them? Just for 10 minutes for, you know, that day? 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness, God continued to provide, continued to provide, continued to provide. And did they get to store it up and go, well, I've got, you know, two weeks worth. I think we're good. It went bad. They had it daily. God daily provided for them for 40 years and they grumbled. What is God providing for you? Is he providing a a comfortable, cushy life? Not necessarily. They're in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. What is he providing is his son who came down from heaven. True food, true drink, spiritual food, spiritual drink. And he provides you on a daily basis. And all he asks, that you do the work of God. (laughs) That sounds intimidating, doesn't it? I'll do the work of God. Oh my gosh, I can't do that. The work of God is this, trust in the son. So, God will provide. He will continually provide. He is dependable, reliable, and he asks us on a daily basis, trust and trust and trust and trust. Worry not for tomorrow. It has its own concerns. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, we're going to walk with Israel, and we're going to have manna, and I wish I could say it was just wonderful after this, but they're going to complain about the manna too. So, sorry. (laughs) Spoiler alert. But I think it's a beautiful picture of how God provides for us. So when we talk about God rules us, when we say that in, a, in our context, does that mean God now places all these burdensome laws on us? His, his rule is tr- trust in the Lord. That, that's my rule for you. And I will provide. I will provide. I will provide. I will provide. So even now that we're in the, he, he delivered us and Israel in the deliverance just sat and watched. And now in the, the ruling, we again just rest in the Lord. He, he has given us Sabbath rest in his son. And I think it's a beautiful picture. It continues to echo through history and it applies to us today is we have a Sabbath. We have manna and it's provided daily for us. Let's pray. Lord, our, our, heart, our hearts tend to want to do things. We want to see things performed. We want to have a task to work on. And, and part of that, Lord, I think is, is, is the way you've created us. You put us in a garden and then you told Adam, work the garden. And so we have an instinct. We have a, a, a desire to work. Israel didn't sit in their tent and have the manna miraculously appear in their laps. They were told to go out and gather it, but then they were told to rest. And so, Lord, help us with our own desire to work to trust that, Lord, you are our righteousness. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises so we can rest in him. And then from a position of rest, we can go out and see what it is to live with you. So, Lord, help us to do that. I know that the story of Israel is not going to be very pretty sometimes um, on their part, but on your part, Lord, you're going to continue to provide. And so may that feed our faith. Help us to have rest in Christ. Help us to take a Sabbath, a a time away from the labors of our our day-to-day existence and to just enjoy you. 
And so, Lord, may you strengthen our faith, cause us to grow in grace, cause us to trust more every day as every morning we see the manna out on the ground when we, when we rise and to know, Lord, that you will not fail us. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.